Welcome. We are so thankful that you are joining us today on our podcast, Our Shared Humanity. Our show is sponsored by the Healing and Reconciliation Institute, and also through the donations and support of our listeners. Our show amplifies and celebrates the personal stories and teachings of healing and reconciliation in order to invoke our shared humanity. Each month, we welcome a guest to our show where we learn more about their personal commitment to the, to the healing and reconciliation, the teachings that have helped them in their voyage, and the hopeful stories of healing and reconciliation circles that are happening all over our country and the world. We welcome you to join us by subscribing to our podcast and also check out our organization's website, healingreconciliationinstitute.org. Please also consider making a donation when you listen in to sustain our work and honor the contributions of elders who have shared their teachings with all of us. Rise up, all you warriors of love, all you answers to the prayers of our ancestors from above. We are thrilled today to have two special guests, Kendall Ramirez and Malia Powell. Both of these stunning women uh, have been a part of the Healing Reconciliation Institute and our mission for a while. And this is the first time that we've gotten to have the two of them together in this wonderful gathering to join us today on this topic. We've had some great conversations with these two around navigating the curriculum, exploring what the teachings are to them personally. And as we bring it to you today, we welcome our listeners to consider their place in this circle. And we invite you to join us by commenting and sharing more as this podcast is posted. Kendall Ramirez has lived in New Mexico on the Navajo Nation since the mid-1990s. With 20 years of high school teaching experience in special education and math, Kendall specializes in working with adolescents who experience emotional and behavioral challenges. She practices and teaches traditional Mexican medicine and apprentices under Maestra Laura Alonso de Franklin of Capuli, Teocali, Olin in Los Lunas, New Mexico. Malia Powell also joining us, we welcome as well. Malia Powell is a professor of research in the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University, where she is a faculty member in American Indian and Indigenous Studies. She is editor of College Composition and Communication, lead organizer of the Cultural Rhetorics Conference, director of the Cultural Rhetorics Consortium, founding editor of Constellations, a journal of cultural rhetorics, past chair of the CCCC, and editor emerita of SAIL, Studies in American Indian Literatures, a widely published scholar and poet. Her decolonial scholarship has generally been concerned with the indigenous and other non-Western forms of healing and the ways in which those ancestral traditions connect us back to the land and to spirit. Powell is a mixed blood of Indiana Miami, Eastern Shawnee, and Euro-American Welsh ancestry. In her spare time, she's a life doula and spends as much time as possible with her granddaughters, her gardens, and with other native aunties, artists, and poets and healers. We invite you to explore more about Kendall and Malia. We will make sure that their contact information online is posted in our webinar description and also for the podcast too. Thank you so much for joining us, you two. It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you. So I thought we would start with what has been a very meaty topic in our conversations and, and then I'll hand it over to Brianna to, to go in deeper. 
We've been talking a lot about what it means to be a good guest. I've kind of had a fun time geeking out on this on the Emily Post side, which I think is in third generation of Post family on manners. Um, but we're talking about something a little different today. Uh, and so I thought we could um, open the conversation up, perhaps starting with you, Malia, to share what being a good guest means to you and anything you think that the, our listeners might want to um, hear more about and benefit from, from your perspective. Sure. I think I always thought I knew what it meant to be a good guest, at least in interpersonal ways. I felt like I'd been raised by, you know, I've been raised right to behave well in other people's houses. And then I left my homelands in the Great Lakes and came to northern New Mexico and realized I had to learn all over again what it meant to be a guest in someone else's land, in someone else's place literally in a homelands that didn't belong to me. And so for me, it has been a long process, a careful process, the center of which is a kind of persistence of learning, really coming into the community with the learner's mind, making mistakes, but taking those teachings and taking them as what they are, generous and kind attempts to fold me into the community, and learning what it means to respect the local culture and respect the local community in, and to be of use and of service to that community. And that's, those all seem very ambiguous, I understand, as sort of large scale topics. I think when I talk now to folks who are coming new to this place, that's a very different kind of place than anyone has ever lived before. I tell them at the very least to be quiet, to pay attention, to listen, and don't be disruptive. Don't be derogatory about local practices. They don't understand anything about. And then there's a lot more to it as well. But I'm also really interested in what Kendall has to say. So I'll keep the details for later. <laughs> nice handoff there, Malia. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Malia. Like Malia mentioned, youth, I remember, my mom always being really happy when people said, oh, your children are so well behaved. So I always knew like I was a good guest. I might be big mouth at home, <laughs> but everybody's parents liked me. So I was doing something right, you know? In it, thinking of that, it makes me think of my classroom in a way, because as I was introduced, I've worked a lot with emotional behavioral disorder teens and there was just really one rule when you're in a small room with like six to 10, you know, suicidal, drug addicted, you name it, teenagers. There's one rule, don't trigger the kids. Like being a good guest is like what Malia said, you just don't trigger people. If that means just sitting there being quiet, doing nothing, you're doing something. You're keeping a safe space. In, in one of the positions I had, most of my job was keeping my assistant from triggering the students. So I think, you know, mediators, like Malia was talking about new people to her community, that is a really important role is to assist others from triggering, you know? And doing nothing as a guest is doing something. It's, it's helping create a safe space. Just sit there and watch, like Malia said. But then like a more personal perspective, me moving here 
straight from California, knowing nothing. I didn't even know like there were Navajos till I got here. <laughs> I knew nothing. And it was, I was probably as far from being a good guest as you can get. I got, I was teaching, I got irritated. The kids didn't bring school supplies. I mean, it wasn't, I didn't harp on them, but I did just have that fresh out of college attitude. You mean you don't have a pencil? You know, like really rude, honestly. And it went on and on over time. And I noticed now looking back that as I became a better guest here in Navajo land in Utah, I enjoyed it more. And honestly, I was miserable for like seven years because I was not a good guest and I was like having expectations of the lifestyle I had previously. But part of that transition for me too was marrying into a Navajo family. And so it was a more, had more to gain by being a good guest because it was all my in-laws, approval from them and, you know, community from them. Also my own children, you know, making sure that they grow up respectful of their traditions. As a mother, I felt a lot of responsibility for that in that situation. So I would have to say an in-law is a whole nother level of guests. And it kind of makes you almost not a guest anymore because you have responsibilities now. So, and the responsibility is just to like, be ready to help, you know? And just don't look busy, don't look preoccupied, look like you're there waiting for someone to tell you what to do. And I really think that's kind of like the top when it comes to being a good guest is that attitude. Go there and be willing to be told what to do and be glad to do it. Through both of, of your stories here, I also, heard that really like a, a key part of being a good guest and your different experiences is primarily about being safe and not triggering others. And I'm wondering, you know, in the larger context of healing and reconciliation, can you go deeper into this idea and, you know, how being a good guest relates to this kind of broader conversation of healing and reconciliation that we're all in? That's a really good and complicated question. One of them is that in any situation where you're holding space, you have that holding space is something that you contribute, right? It's not doing nothing. And so whether you're engaged in healing and reconciliation work, where your job is to hold space so that other people can literally do their work, right? Do the internal, external work that they need to do in order to get to the place they want to be in whatever phase of healing they are. And as they're moving towards reconciliation moments with other people, holding space is, is a real task. <laughs> it's a real job. And I think that that is, at least for me, what has been the most successful way to understand myself as a good guest here in Northern New Mexico and Taos specifically. And that is holding this space for folks who are having that initial moment of culture shock 
being a safe sounding board for them so that they're not imposing on locals. They're not imposing on, you know, what here is called the local generational communities who've already been imposed on for hundreds and thousands of years. So not not repeating or replicating those kinds of impositions and impressions and stereotypes and being a bridge where people can work through some of the stuff that's not necessarily pretty, but that's necessary. And so, so I think that for me, that's a way to think about them in parallel. I'm not sure it makes sense to other folks, but it does to me. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. And it's something that like, I, I think this conversation has come up again and again for us um, as we've talked about healing and reconciliation and, and also how hard it is sometimes to uh, know if you're being a good guest. There's kind of a, an unknown territory. And so I'm loving what I'm hearing from each of you around this need for hum- humility in your presence when you arrive in, in territory that's not your own, be that land and communities or holding emotional space for someone. That's interesting, Brianna. I think if you're not being a good guest, you're not going to (laughs) know. If you are being a good guest, you'll recognize that trust and confidence. But so it's like, if if you don't think you're being a good guest, you're probably not. That's a good point. <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing some deep laughter there, Kendall. Could you, ex- what what stories or examples come to mind as as I see your your laughter here has some depth behind it? What yeah. what comes up for you in that? Well, I just I, I really look back and see myself as a brand new teacher, just being really critical. So like, I grew up in Southern California. I'm used to being around dark-skinned people all the time, primarily Mexican-Americans. I literally moved to the Navajo reservation expecting Navajos to act like Mexican-Americans, have the same kind of cultural values, the same habits, the same interests, the same celebrations, you know, same personalities, kind of. And it didn't occur to me for a long time, like, these are Native Americans, they're not even Mexicans. <laughs> it was just really naive, you know, like that, I was that naive, okay? And, um, and but you know, the, the interesting part is that was 1995. Wow. And just this year, I ran into a young man in Home Depot and I was his teacher. And I was pretty, looks pretty old, but he remembered me not in any kind of bad way, but just like, I look like I didn't know what I was doing, but like he reached out to me, like I wasn't a mean teacher. So despite the fact that I look back and kind of judge my attitudes towards my middle school students at that time, when I run into them, they look at me as that I was accepting of them or learning about, you know, like they don't run away from me or duck, you know? So I think, even if you're ignorant and clumsy, if your heart's in the right place, especially young people will sense that. And so you can, that's like a, in a way that's a passport, you know, 
that's a passport. Like if your heart's in the right place, no matter how many times you make mistakes, people sense that. So I don't know if that's the story, but it, it always surprises me when, when I run into students from that many years ago and, and they remember me and that I'm still here and that I, that I had some kind of respect from them, <laughs> you know, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think it, the bottom line, you think of community healing and reconciliation, as we're told over and over, it goes back to yourself. Like what's your intentions in life? your intentions in life to live a good life, then if you make a lot of mistakes, they'll all be for your learning. You know, if your intentions in life is to be the best and be better than others, you know, then who knows? Who knows how that's perceived? But I promise you, when I moved here, it was not trying to be the best teacher. I was just trying to not cry every night when I went home because I was so overwhelmed. I think, Kendall, like, you know, you mentioned time and how long it had been. And I think time is actually really important. We're so conditioned to think that we should be able to turn on a dime and have what we need in a moment and be what we need in a moment. And the truth is, it's taken me, I don't know, like, I've, I've been visiting Taos since 1994. And, you know, when we, we've been we've owned this house, this casita for seven years. And so all the time leading up to that was the time I needed to learn Mm -hmm. about what it meant to live here, what it meant to be here, what it meant to be a part of the community, what kind of help I could offer that wasn't me wanting to center myself, but was actually helpful instead, like the equivalent of like doing the dishes and sweeping the floor, right? Show up and, and do the work that it needs to get done so everyone else can do the work that needs to happen in that moment. And and I, I feel like I've been really lucky to have some aunties here who are happy to tell me when I am not being a good guest. I, and I take that, I take those teachings as hard as they have been in that moment, as the blessings that they really are. When you know people who care about you enough to say, what are you doing? You're acting like a tourist. Quit it. <laughs> I think that that's a huge blessing. But time is important. You can't just arrive somewhere and know everything about it. I mean, I'm a scholar. I can learn about the history, the geology, all of the things I can learn in a book. I can figure out pretty quickly. It's how the culture operates on the ground. And that's true whether you're talking about moving to a new community physically or being in a sort of community relationship with folks who are in that HRI process, right? Is that that local culture, how people practice and behave with one another based on what they believe is the is the key. And once you start to see the little glimmers of that, you can hold space in a way that actually holds it and holds them. Um, I actually think that newcomers to Taos, our job is to hold space so that local generational families can engage in the kind of activism and cultural practices that have been important to them for hundreds and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. My job is to hold that space 
Um, it's not to make this place like I want it to be. It's not to make it over into some version of a community I came from. It's to hold that space so the folks to whom this land belongs and whose ancestors live here so that they can continue to make this a place for their families and their ancestors. Oh, every time you talk about aunties, I just get the biggest smile on my face because it's such a double-edged sword, right? I, you know, many of us didn't have families that kind of taught us the manners that we need for this type of conversation and um, related to indigenous lands and, and, and living and moving into places um, that were traditional historical homes of others. And I keep thinking that the aunties were part of the solution, right? That they're there to tell you very directly what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. And, and we kind of miss that when we don't have our lineages intact and we don't have someone kind of telling us what to do and grabbing us by the ear. So I just really relating to uh, the smile, the, you know, that kind of ironic laugh as you're saying how much you love your aunties. I hear that. That's it's learning. It's beginner learning too, I hear. Mm -hmm. Kendall, I, I'd love to love to follow up with something you said about triggering especially in your role as a as a healer as somebody who's um, traditionally trained and in your bio you know we share a little bit about your teacher what what has that done for you in creating a space that's not triggering you, know, you say it lightly but there's a lot of depth and understanding behind that so I'm just curious if you could go into that a little bit more based on your one of your other hats as healer the only thing that pops into my mind is the classroom because um, that's where the majority of my experience preventing myself from triggering fragile people and also preventing my coworkers, my staff from triggering fragile people. That was literally my full-time job was just preventing triggering. Um, and I, you know, I think in some ways well, definitely in all ways, it was pretty much experience-based and instinctive the way I learned because nobody can teach it to you. I have a clear memory of uh, my middle school life skills classroom with the developmental disabled students um, of all types from wheelchair bound to like fully highly like nonverbal autistic in this one room and we we at times had so much chaos going on. When the principal came down, he'd just say hi to the kids, hi to the staff, and walk out. And we had him trained to do that because when it started, he wasn't doing that. He was coming and trying to help. And he finally learned, you know, that, you know, just his presence is like, hey, I'm the principal. I'm here checking on you guys. I can see you're doing fine. And out, you know, and, and that's really... And this was a fellow that had no experience with special ed whatsoever. And I was actually just learning to serve that population, but my assistants were the ones with all the training. So I think you really have to look at where you stand in a situation and who the experts are then and there in that situation. Um, let's just say we popped into a talking circle in Taos. You know, your role as a good guest, as a healing presence is to listen around that room, look around that room, and identify like, who are the uncomfortable people, who are the comfortable people, who are the open people, who are the ones that really know what's going on here? 
And that's the most important learning when it comes to not triggering. And because I'll tell you what, like a lot of times the people with the most expertise are going to be afraid to make suggestions to you. And that's how it was with my assistants. Had a one woman who'd done nearly 20 years of working in a life skills classroom. And I remember how she used to tiptoe around me. And this was like my first time doing this. And finally, I figured out that she was used to being pounced on by teachers because they were the teacher. She's just an assistant. So, and I used to ask her questions. She still wouldn't say anything. But once she saw my intention and she knew I wasn't going to attack her or blame her for anything, then, then she was willing to like really take charge of certain aspects of the room and leave me to do like the bouncer work basically because she had the experience of teaching children in that situation I didn't you know but at the same time she's worried about stepping on my toes and what that might mean for her so this can apply to any group of people you know the people of the experience because they've been shut down before can be very hesitant to come forward and say you know this is what works here this is how we've done it in the past. I have experience with this kind of situation. So, yeah, I I feel like uh, whenever you get a group of people together, it's important not just for facilitators to know that. For every participant, they need to know who's who because it's not like your standard setting. You don't just walk into the room and there's this hierarchy. It's gonna be based on experience and it's not always self-evident, but it's everybody's responsibility to find that amongst each other. I hope that kind of answers the question. Yeah. Uh, and then going more into triggering, like as far as the healing work I do, when when I begin a session with a client, they talk to the fire. And if they're looking at me, I tell them, talk to the fire. <laughs> and that's kind of like, I steadily, you know, kind of beat them down to where they stop looking at me and they're talking to the fire because it makes it more of a flow. They're not looking at how I'm judging what they're saying. It takes away me triggering them for what they want to express and get off their chest. So in that small one-to-one, -one, very, you know, safe setting, still have to be worried about triggering somebody or even just shutting down what they might need to get off their chest. And so you look at the fire because in, in our kind of healing work, we rely on the four elements, the air, the water, the earth, and the fire. And so the fire has color and stuff. So it's like really nice for them to just look at the fire. It holds their attention and it, it's calming and it prevents me from triggering them. Yeah, Kendall, something that's really standing out for me as you were talking about the classroom and also with this description of the fire and keeping this focus on the fire, but especially in the classroom, this idea that, you know, in that context, you have a certain, you have a certain kind of power, like institutional power, right? You're the teacher, this person's the assistant and, and your role in that context is, as you described, was actually to like make that space for the people in the room who are the experts, no matter sort of 
what kinds of structures we're putting on it. And and then you mentioned facilitators and what it what it means to be a facilitator and, and really inviting everyone in the room from their place um, to speak from their own experience um, and their own expertise and 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 to hear each other as well in that way. And and I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that around, you know, both of you are involved with the dry facilitator training. And I'm curious how you see this playing out in that context. <laughs> Brianna, like I, as I was listening to your question, I was thinking about, I've been actually thinking about this for a while, that role, what does it mean to be a facilitator versus being a teacher versus being a leader versus being a lecturer, an instructor, all those things, you know, in university systems, the ones where I'm used to working, all those words have designations that are attached to power and money. <laughs> and I think it's really ironic because facilitation is a very specific kind of skill. And it's, it is different than I think the kinds of skills that we assume teachers have, even though I think all good teachers are facilitators, right? I think back to the teachers that were the most in, important to my life. And I think back to my best teaching moments and they're all about facilitation, about literally stepping out of the way and doing what Kendall was talking about, letting the folks in the room speak from where they are and learn from each other. And, and you're just sort of standing there, letting, making sure it happens, making sure it flows, but not forcing anything. And I think in the kind of work that the kind of emotional work that has to happen in healing and reconciliation, the kind of work that happens in the teaching spaces I'm in now, which are usually healers and student apprentices, and even in the kinds of spaces I was in before, which was research graduate education, having that ability, right, to have all the power of the institution conferred on you and to basically put your hands up and say, no, it's the learners in the room who are the teachers here. I'm just here to make sure everybody gets to talk, everybody gets water, everybody gets to attend to their needs and, and to make sure no one gets triggered and to be a presence if someone is having a moment that they can feel some comfort and safety around. So that, that F word has been really in my mind lately. It's, I, I, there's something about the facilitation that's so unruly and it, you know, it's like sometimes even these conversations are our own journeys of learning. There's like this kind of just trying to embrace the awkwardness that's kind of inherent in being human as, as facilitators. Um, this is something that um, our administrator Suki has shared, uh, you know, it's just, that's part of this practice. Um, and it's very, it's less safe than being the teacher, the lecturer with the authority, you know, that you kind of hold as that, and that title. Kendall, do you have any additional thoughts around, you know, kind of what you've kind of noted in that facilitator title and, and how does that maybe even relate to the fire metaphor that you were sharing earlier? <laughs> well, I guess as we're talking about this, I became the facilitator in that life skills classroom but it was a process. I mean, you know, I just walked into an empty room with desks and, and I was supposed to make some kind of safe setting 
for these multiple handicapped students and like ways they could learn. And I literally had nothing. I didn't even have pencils. I didn't have paint. I didn't, you know, there was nothing for me to start with. So I had to start making some structure. And I think that's the beginning of before you become a facilitator and creating that kind of safe space is putting in lots of structure because someone has to make those decisions of what's going to happen. And when you're the teacher, you got five people looking at you plus eight students, what's going to happen? And so you have to be willing to just set structure and change it next week if it doesn't work. You know, just let's, okay, let's put another structure now. Now these kids are going to the football field when these kids are doing the kitchen stuff, you know? And I think good facilitation is based on a lot of structure in the beginning and being really thinking quickly, like Malaya was saying, thinking quickly of how to set that structure even when you don't have a lot of resources, you know? And, you know, kind of starting with broad structure very broad structure and then bringing it down to where there's a flow and then from there going with the expertise as it comes out the new ideas as they come out but you know like Malia's referencing to like the academic setting and I've just started my master's in Native American studies and I do feel like they're not starting with enough structure, especially in an online setting. We're not able to discover who of our cohort are experts in what, because we haven't had enough structure in the beginning to like identify things or even be able to have conversations. So it's kind of, it's just feeling really random right now. It's really making me appreciate, you know, the facilitator training. It's it's been wonderful. It's been, you know, so like developmental, my career, but also just my personal life. Facilitator presence, I can take it home with my own children. And it's not even a Zoom. <laughs> We're just sitting in the living room, you know, like you can bring that presence to any setting. I hope I answered the question. I guess, um... And hearing you both speak, I'm I'm kind of wondering if we can sort of weave weave all the thoughts that have come out today together, and and mostly this like you know we started with this conversation about you know what does it mean to be a good guest, and we're kind of landing now in this place of what does it look like to be a good facilitator, and, and I guess I'm just curious in your words from the various experiences you've had like. What do you see as this relationship of being a good guest and and then now stepping into this work of facilitator, particularly in the context of the Healing and Reconciliation Institute and uh, what you're facilitating, who you're facilitating um, and where this question of, of being a good guest comes in? I mean, in some ways, HRI facilitators are the ultimate guests, right? Um, they're guests in everybody's kitchen. Because of the way the process is structured, they're welcome guests, invited guests even. But that doesn't mean that the process won't play out with the same set of um, teachings and learnings, right? 
So if I had to sum it up, that relationship in one sentence, I'd say that HRI facilitators have to take that learner's mind of the good guest at every moment and the assumption that the systems that are in place that they're moving into, the communications and communities that they're going to be a part of make sense all on their own. <laughs> right? And it's like figuring out what the, where that sense is and where it overlaps and how to bring it together that becomes the work of much of, of, of many of the workshops and the moments that you have together in either the, either of the communities you're working with. Thank you, Malia. And Kendall, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I think as you, as you go through that process of becoming a good guest, you just are a facilitator because you're seeing from both sides, essentially. Um, you know, in my friendships and basically mentorships from medicine people, Navajo medicine people, there's points in our conversation where I have to say no, you have to say that to, you know, like I have to coach them on what is necessary to articulate or to do when they're around non-natives because they don't know because they're straight up native. Like they don't have that reference point of being non-native and they don't understand how non-natives interpret things. And so there again, I'm just like facilitating a potential experience for someone because I'm getting the picture both sides. The same, it happens when I work with my Lebanese friend, my talk to her, like she's lived here for many years in this country, but her whole cultural framework is Lebanese. And I have to tell her, you can do this. You can say this to these people, like it's allowed and it's expected here in America, you know? And so the, the cause when I'm with her, even though she's a guest of this country, her culture is so strong. I feel like I'm her guest all the time whenever I'm with her. Her culture is so strong as a Lebanese. I feel like I'm, I'm like an ambassador too, a facilitator for her to navigate our system better. Same with a lot of my Navajo friends. Navajos have such a huge land base and such a huge population that they're often isolated from mainstream America. In many, many ways, they're isolated from it. And so again, to be good guests with them, I, I tell them this is okay. You can assert yourself in this way. Like you can, even though it wouldn't be okay amongst their family or their community, I can let them know it's okay to do this in these other settings. So being a good guest is being a facilitator of both sides of the story. Thank you, Kendall. Thank you, Malia. I really appreciate that last question, Brianna. That really is a beautiful way to weave together these different aspects of what we were discussing today and, and, and the land here on them being one and the same. I wanted to just uh, share and welcome our listening audience to, uh, to be a part of the conversation. Uh, we often will have our guests um, who listen, who share here, and also those who listen in. 
share what they mean by good guest. And we welcome you to do so as we post this episode. And also for those of you who are interested in what it means to be a good guest facilitator, <laughs> we do, we will have our open cohort application process for 2022, uh, probably announced later this year. And we welcome you to apply and sign up for our newsletter to be noticed about that. Um, we really appreciate Kendall and Leah, you coming today. Thank you so much for to taking the time uh, to share more about yourselves, your point of view and your rich wisdom on being a good guest and, and your role as facilitator. Thank you so much. But we've seen it all before and now we know we can change it cause that's why we were born. We know we are the ones that we have been waiting for. We are the ones grandma has been praying for. So rise up. Thank you so much for coming today. This podcast is copyrighted 2021 Healing and Reconciliation Institute. Music by Lila June Johnson and Lauren Monroe. Technical direction by Alice McGowan and edited by Hunter Wentworth. Administrative support by Suki Dallery. Our advisor circle. And of course, Maya West and Brianna Bellamy as your hosts. Thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to make a reciprocal gift of thanks for listening, please do so um, by clicking the donate button on our website and mentioning our guests in your donation form.